Well, I'm not ashamed to tell you that I have a love for pumpkin-flavored things. Some folks on our staff give me a hard time for liking pumpkin spice latte, but I'm not ashamed of it. I don't think that's a sissy drink. I think it's good. And by the way, some of the same folks who give me a hard time about pumpkin spice lattes have some drinks that are questionable as their favorites. For example, one staff member likes white chocolate mocha, listen, with an extra drizzle of caramel on top. I don't want to tell you who that is, but if Joey walked in with a cup, I would I'd be willing to wager that's what's in the cup. Another staff member prefers peppermint mocha. And I'm not tell you who that is, but it rhymes with Stefan. All right? So they can't make fun of me, all right? I like pumpkin-flavored stuff. I just do. That's the way I am. Well, Claire uh, made for me this past week pumpkin scones. Can I get a witness? Delicious. Well, I was at the grocery store, and she was texting me to make sure she had all the ingredients she needed for the pumpkin scones. I was making sure we had everything we needed because if the recipe is going to come out right, you need all the correct ingredients. When you put all the ingredients together, you get what's intended. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about some ingredients that are necessary for us to grow spiritually, that are necessary for us to grow in our faith. I want to share some ingredients for growth. You might say ingredients for spiritual maturity. We're going to study Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word, truth, with no mixture of error. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What a privilege. We get to study the Bible this morning. Amen? Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful for this opportunity to gather, to, Lord, have this parent commitment ceremony, Lord, to praise you through song, and now, Lord, to just gather around your word with expectant hearts, Lord, knowing that you are going to speak to us in these moments. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move with power in our midst, that you would take the word of God and apply it to our hearts, we might understand it, and we might do it. We might obey what we study. We don't, we don't want to be just hearers of the word, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. And so I pray that you would work in our midst. I pray that Jesus would be lifted up. It's all about Jesus. And I pray that we would leave, Lord, saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, establish my steps in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I'm not saying we're going to go long this morning, but I had an extra hour last night, and I'm feeling good, all right? 
Colossians chapter 2, we see three necessary ingredients for spiritual growth. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae. He's writing from jail. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And yet he had a report from Epaphras concerning how the church in Colossae was doing. So he's writing to them to commend the good things that he'd heard and to address the concerns that he had. And chapter 1 is a powerful chapter as Paul prays for them and Paul outlines the purpose of his ministry. We saw last week that Paul said, the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I want to see people complete in Christ. I'm not just looking for converts. I'm looking for people that are growing into spiritual maturity. And as he outlines that theme, the end of chapter 1, he begins, or he continues to talk about it in chapter 2 and to discuss what spiritual growth looks like and the necessity and the importance of spiritual growth. And in these first five verses, he gives us some ingredients that if you combine all these things, you will see spiritual maturity happening. So what are these three ingredients? The first one is encouragement. Encouragement. Look what Paul says there in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. So Paul's concerned with the Christians in the first century city of Colossae. He's also concerned with the neighboring city of Laodicea, which was also in the Lycus River Valley. And in chapter 4, he even mentions Hierapolis, another city in the Lycus River Valley. So Paul intended for this letter to make the circuit through these three cities, through these three churches. He's concerned about them. He says there, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and these other churches. Now, the word struggle is the noun form of the verb we saw last week that Paul used, where he said, I'm striving to see you complete in Christ. It's it's an athletic term. It's a military term. He said, I'm experiencing struggle for you. Now, we see from this that Paul gave of himself for others. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm striving on your behalf. Paul gave of himself for other people. You see, Paul had a desire to be with these believers so that he could encourage them. Look what he says there in verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those at Laodicea, for all those who have not personally seen my face. I, I can't be with you right now. He was in jail. But he said, I want to be. I wish I could be there so that I could do the work of encouragement face to face. But since he could not be with them, his thoughts and prayers were with them to such a degree that he could say what he says in verse 5. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. I can't be there, but I'm there. My prayers are there. My concerns are there. I care about what happens in your church. I, I care about what happens in your individual Christian lives. Paul here is is giving of himself for others. He had never met these people. Remember, Epaphras started the church, not Paul. He had never met these people, and yet he loves them. It's one thing to love our immediate local church family. It's another thing to love other Christians to such a degree that you're praying for them and concerned about their spiritual growth. And Paul's desire here is for real, lasting, listen, spiritual encouragement. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, I'm struggling. There's a great struggle. That, verse 2, their hearts may be encouraged. Paul's desire is for the believers in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis to be encouraged in their hearts. Now, when we think of the heart, we think of emotions. That's how we use the, the term the heart. We apply it to people's lives. But in the first century, in 
in Hebrew, in the Hebrew mindset, the heart represented the entire person. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I'm, I, I'm, I'm concerned that you are encouraged uh, to the deepest part of your being, that you receive an encouragement that touches you deep down, that it, it involves all of who you are. Paul desired spiritual encouragement, that they would receive that which they need to go the direction God wanted them to go. And here's the deal, and I want you to hear me carefully on this. Everyone needs encouragement for spiritual maturity. Everyone. Because God designed us to need help. Turn with me to Hebrews very quickly. Hebrews chapter 10. I want to show you this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Now starting in verse 19, Paul, uh, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, I don't believe it was Paul, the writer of Hebrews made two admonitions. He says there in verse 19, let us draw near to Christ. Now that we have access, let's draw near and walk with him. Then he says, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to our beliefs. But look what he says in verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And that word encouraging is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 2, verse 2. Same word, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we learn from that, if we're going to draw near to Christ, if we're going to hold fast to our beliefs, we need some encouragement, right? And Hebrews says, if you're going to be encouraged by each other, you've got to be around each other. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need to be together. That's why church attendance is important. Connect groups are important because you're with other believers and getting the, the encouragement that you need to grow in Christ. I, I want you to hear me carefully. I love the Lone Ranger. My boys love the Lone Ranger. We tape the, the old black and white Lone Ranger. We love watching those shows together. He, he's, he's cool. But you will not find the concept of a Lone Ranger Christian in the Bible. God designed us to thrive in community. And by the way, even Lone Ranger had Tonto. Right? Kimosabi, right? We need each other. We need encouragement. We need to be around each other to get that spurring on to love and good works. That spurring on to, to, to pursue Christ. That spurring on to grow in Christ and be who God has called us to be. And so the first ingredient for spiritual growth is just encouragement. Good old-fashioned encouragement. And by the way, a little encouragement goes a long way, right? So there's two points of application here. Number one, open yourself up to the encouragement of others. Get around some believers. Make sure you're around the body of Christ. So you get the encouragement that you need. People speaking, uh, encouraging things into your life. But also make sure that you are an encourager. I love Barnabas in the book of Acts. I mean, Bar every time you see Barnabas, he's encouraging folks. Make sure that you are a Barnabas, that you are seeking to, to speak good things, encouraging things into someone else's life. Try it this week. This week, look for some folks to encourage. Maybe once a day, I want to encourage somebody today through a text, a phone call, an email, a cup of coffee together. I'm going to encourage somebody today to help them, to stimulate them to grow in Christ. That's the first ingredient of spiritual growth. There's another one here. Not only do we see encouragement we see fellowship fellowship look what paul says back in colossians chapter 2 
He's concerned, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Then he says, I love this, having been knit together in love. So he's saying, not only do I want your hearts to be encouraged, he's I want your hearts to be knit together with other people's hearts. I want you to experience true fellowship. And by the way, that's what true fellowship is. True fellowship is a uniting of people's hearts. That's what it is. It's where people are living together life on life. They're, they're serving Christ together. They're, they're spending time together. They're caring for one another. They're ministering to each other. That's what true fellowship is. And I don't think we understand this because we made a critical error in the middle part of the 20th century, at least in Baptist life. In Baptist life, in the middle part of the 1900s, we began to build these buildings that were assembly places to eat. And you know what we called them? Fellowship halls, right? And so, in our mindset, eating equals fellowship. Now, I'm not going to argue that eating's part of it, amen? But fellowship goes so much deeper than eating together. There's a lot more to fellowship than covered dishes. There is. It, it, it's a, Paul says it's a knitting together of hearts. You say, wait, I want that. I want my heart to be knit to other believers' hearts, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I want that closeness. I want that, that real, true fellowship in, in my church. How do I get there? Well, if you look there in your notes, true fellowship is supernatural. This is something that God does. Because look what he says there back in verse 2. He says, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together. Now, grammatically, that, that verb translated knit together, is in the passive voice. And the passive voice is used to speak of an object being acted on by an outside force. So he said, I'm praying that your hearts would be acted on by an outside force. So they'll be knit together with other hearts. Question, what or rather, who's the outside force? It's the Lord, right? I'm praying that the Lord would knit your hearts together. This is not something you do in and of your own strength. But when God shows up, and there are a group of people who say, Lord, knit my hearts with others, God does it. And when God does it, he does it well, right? There's nothing like fellowshipping with other believers when your hearts are knit together. You really love each other. You really care for each other. You're, you're, you're there for one another through the, through the valleys and through the mountaintops. You are knit with other people fellowship. We need more fellowship in our churches. We need more fellowship in the body of Christ because fellowship is an ingredient for spiritual growth. You need it if you want to grow spiritually. But there's a third thing here. Not only do we see encouragement as an ingredient and fellowship as an ingredient, we see truth as a necessary ingredient for spiritual growth. Truth. Look what Paul writes there in verse 2. He's, he's struggling. He's striving on their behalf that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Paul's saying if you want to have growth, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to go from conversion to completeness, you've got to have encouragement. You need it. You need fellowship but you also need truth. By the way, there are some churches that are fabulous at encouragement and fabulous at fellowship, but they don't have truth. And without truth, there won't be true spiritual growth. You've got to have truth. 
And I want to share some things that come from this text about truth. Truth is a big deal. I want to just give you several thoughts about truth. Number one, truth is precious. Truth is precious. Paul says there in verse 2, says that you are attaining. He wants them to attain to all the wealth. Isn't that interesting he uses that word? Paul is pointing us here to the reality that true wealth is not found in stuff. True wealth is not found in the accumulation of money or, or material goods. True wealth is related to knowing the truth. Truth is precious. Is I want you to come to the full assurance that comes from, from the wealth of truth. Truth is precious. Years ago, the churches used to sing a song, I could sing of your love forever. And there's a line in there that I love. It says, I'm happy to be in the truth, and I will daily lift my hands and always sing of when your love came down. Listen, are you happy to be in the truth? Are you happy that you know that your sins are forgiven? That you know where you will spend eternity? That you know who the true God is? That you understand spiritual realities? Are, are, are you happy to be in the truth? Truth is precious. We, 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 we should not be willing to take a million dollars for the truth. Because the truth is true wealth. The riches of knowing what's right and what's wrong. The, the riches of knowing what, what it means to know the one true God. The riches of having a personal relationship with Him surpass all other riches. Truth is precious. I hope you see it that way. Truth is not just some things we believe and say, well, I believe those things. Truth is something we say, oh, I'm so grateful for these things, so grateful for these realities. Truth is precious. But secondly, truth is revealed. Truth is revealed. Look what Paul says there in verse 2. He says, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding Resulting, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Now look at the words he uses related to wealth. Related to this thing he's talking about, truth. He says there, the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. That word full assurance speaks of, uh, of the idea that you are completely certain of the truth of something. So saying you are experiencing the wealth, the riches of knowing something for sure. Then he says, the assurance of understanding resulting in true knowledge. So he's talking about things that you know, things that you have come to know. And then he says these things are related to God's mystery. Now, the word mystery is used in the New Testament to refer to a secret once hidden, but that has now been revealed and understood. And we saw over in Ephesians 6 a few weeks ago that the mystery equals the gospel. The gospel message, the message of salvation. He's saying here that there was a time you did not know how to be saved. You did not know how to have a relationship with God. You did not understand spiritual realities. But now, that message which was once hidden, once unknown, has been revealed to you and you know it. You've experienced the wealth of full assurance, of knowledge, and understanding of the mystery, of God's mystery. You know these things now. In other words, God has graciously revealed these things to you. Now think of this for a moment. 
God did not have to reveal anything to us, right? Acts 7, I'm sorry, Acts 17, when Paul's speaking at Mars Hill in Athens, he speaks of those who are apart from Christ. He says, listen, they're groping in the dark. And if God did not reveal his truth to us, if he did not speak to us through his word, we would be groping in the dark, right? We would have no clue how to be prepared for eternity. No clue how to be right with God. We'd have to make it up. But aren't you glad that God loves you so much and God is so gracious that he has spoken? He has revealed his mystery. Truth is revealed. Truth is not something we figure out on our own. It's got to be revealed. And God has revealed it, and for that we should be grateful. Let me show you a third thing about truth. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. Look what he says there in verse 2. He says, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. So he said, here's the summary of the mystery that's been revealed to you. It's all, listen, it's all about Jesus. And then he says in the next verse, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, when you come to Christ, when you know Christ, everything else makes sense. That's where you start to really understand what life's about. When you know Jesus, truth is not just a set of propositional statements, even though it is that. There are some propositional realities that we believe as Bible-believing Christians, but truth is understood in the context of knowing Jesus. In other words, as you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you see these things clearly. Truth is found in a person in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me read you a couple quotes about this. The first one comes from Douglas Moo. He writes, Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. So in other words, all you need to know about spiritual things, all you need to know about being related to God is found in Christ. If you want to understand what life's all about, Come to Jesus, and you'll understand what life is all about. And let me say it in a a negative way. If you do not come to Christ, you will never understand what life is all about. I've been in the university classes, philosophy, where they're trying to find the meaning of life apart from Christ, and it's so trivial, and it's so sad to see them trying to figure out life apart from Jesus. They'll never figure out life apart from Jesus. Okay, how smart you are, how many degrees you have, how many books you've written, how many classes you teach. If you don't know Christ, you will not understand grasp spiritual realities. True wisdom, true knowledge is only found in a relationship with Christ. I love this quote from R. Kent Hughes. It's a longer quote, but just bear with me because it's powerful. Listen to what he writes. What you think of Christ, your conception of him is everything. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is eternal and without end, if you believe that he is creator of everything, every cosmic speck across trillions of light years of trackless space, the creator of the textures and shapes and colors which daily dazzle your eyes, if you believe that he is the sustainer of all creation, the force which is presently holding the atoms of your body, 
your town, this universe together, and that without him, all would dissolve if you believe that he is the mystery, the incarnate reconciler who will one day reconcile the universe and redeem humanity to himself. If you believe that he is the lover of your soul, who loves you with a love bounded only by his infinitude, then, despite the fact that life will be full of trouble, nothing much will go wrong. If you believe all these things about Christ, who the Bible reveals him to be, you have, you have spiritual realities figured out. And nothing can touch you when you have those eternal things settled in your soul. He writes, your vision of Christ will quicken and shape your life. What you believe about Christ makes all the difference in the world now and in eternity. Truth is a person. We find truth when we find Jesus. If you want life to really make sense, if you want to have the peace that comes from knowing God, the peace that comes from having your sins washed away, the hope that comes from knowing that when you die, you will step into eternity with Jesus. If you want to get that, you've got to come to Christ. Truth is a person. But I want to give you one more thought about truth. Truth is precious. Truth is revealed. Truth is a person. But last, truth will always be challenged. Truth will always be challenged. Look what Paul says in verse 4. I say this, I'm reminding you of the mystery of Christ. It's been revealed to you that you've, you, you've come to know. I'm saying this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Now, this is an important turning point in the book because the first chapter, Paul was basically encouraging them, uh, praying for them, outlining his ministry philosophy. But now, in chapter 2, he's going to begin to address some false teaching that was coming against that church. And we'll look at that false teaching more in detail in the coming weeks and understand what this false teaching is. And, and by the way, the false teaching they were experiencing in Colossae is still alive and well in our world today. So we need to study what this false teaching is. But here, Paul says, I want, you to I want to remind you that it's all about Jesus so that you will not be deluded, verse 4, with persuasive argument. Now that word persuasive argument is an interesting word. It's a compound word in the Greek. Uh, the second part of the word is logos, which is the word for rational appeal or argument. The first word is the Greek word pythos. It's where we get the word python from. And it comes with the idea of squeezing to try to persuade. And he's saying, I don't want you to be led away with someone squeezing you to believe the wrong things. I don't want you to be deluded with false arguments. In other words, truth will always be challenged. And look at the, the terminology Paul uses in verse 5. He says, even though I'm absent in body... Nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, Paul here uses two military terms. The first term he uses is the word totsis in the Greek. It, 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 it's used of position which soldiers occupy, good order, organized ranks. That's the word that's translated good discipline. The second word he uses is the word uh, steroma, which translated stability in our, ver in our verse today. It was used of a bulwark or a fortification. Uh, it was used of a, of a defense. And so these two words, listen, describe an army that is solidly united against the enemy. Order or discipline describes the arrangement of the army in ranks with each soldier in his proper place. 
Stability or steadfastness pictures the soldiers in battle formation presenting a solid front to the enemy. Here's what Paul's saying. I know that you are being bombarded with false teaching that would lead you away from Jesus. The the purity and, and simplicity of devotion to Christ. So I'm glad to hear that as of now, you are like a well-organized army providing or, or standing against, putting up your fortress against that false truth. He's using military terms. In other words, when false teaching comes against the church, we need to fight. Over in 2 Timothy, when Paul's describing his his, his ministry he says, I fought the good fight. Over in Jude, we see that we are to contend. That word was the word for wrestling. We are to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. When it comes to the truth of the word of God, when it comes to the truth of the gospel, listen, we are called to fight, to stand together in our ranks, putting up a wall of defense so that false teaching cannot infiltrate our church. We are to stand for and fight for the truth. I read a story this past week about a pastor that was concerned about an unsavory business that had opened near to a school. And he began to protest this, and eventually the whole matter came to a head and it went to court. And this pastor had to, to speak in that courtroom setting And the defense attorney did all he could to embarrass this pastor. He said something to him like this. Are you not a pastor? And doesn't the word pastor mean shepherd? Well, the pastor said, well, yes, I am a pastor, and the word does mean shepherd. And the lawyer said, well, if you're a shepherd, why aren't you out taking care of the sheep? In other words, why are you wasting your time on this? You should be back tending the sheep. And here's what the pastor said. He said, because today... I'm fighting the wolves. I'm fighting the wolves. Listen to me. We are called to fight against the wolves that would try to come into our midst and lead us astray from Jesus. If there's any teaching that leads you away from Jesus, it's false teaching. Amen? But it's out there. So we've got to make sure that our pulpit, from our pulpit comes Christ-centered biblical doctrine. In our connect groups, in our ministry areas, everything is Christ-centered biblical doctrine that we stand against false teaching, that we fight as a well-organized, well-trained army, that we contend earnestly for the faith. Because I'm telling you, if we're passive in this area, false teaching will find its home here and will lead many people astray. And we do not want that to happen. And so these are three necessary ingredients for spiritual growth. Encouragement, fellowship, and truth. And if you have all three and you mix them together, you'll see good things happen in your spiritual life. As a matter of fact, these three things are the recipe for godly homes. We had families down here this morning, parent commitment ceremony, powerful time. And and that's what we want in our homes, right? Think about it. Encouragement in our homes. Fellowship. Not just living under the same roof, but we really love each other. Our hearts are knit together. And then truth. 
If you have those three things in a home, that's the recipe for a godly home and a godly marriage and godly children. This is the recipe for strong connect groups. I mean, as I was studying this, I kept thinking about our connect groups because this is what we want. We want our connect groups, our small groups that gather together. We want them to be full of encouragement and full of fellowship. People really loving each other and built upon the foundation of the truth. This is the formula. This is the recipe for strong connect groups. This is the, the recipe for individual Christian growth. For meeting one-on-one with somebody and encouraging one. If we encourage them and, and, and have fellowship with them and live together life on life and teach them truth and the truth is the foundation of our meetings, that's the recipe for growth. And this is the recipe for a powerful church. I would consider our church to be blessed if we could just say our church is a place of encouragement. Our church is a place of real fellowship. And our church is a place of truth. If those three things are happening here, that's the recipe for a powerful church. Amen? And so consider these three issues, these three items, these three ingredients, and let God work them into your life. And work them into your family. And work them into your church.